some of your audience members will have gone through uh, school for being a biblical scholar, but one of the things you just learn is that Yahweh was a storm god. I actually started finding evidence that seemed to contradict that. There are many reasons that I think that Yahweh was originally a sun god. For some reason, the enemy of Yahweh is the sea or a sea monster. You have a comparison with the sun god in Egypt who fights a dragon of the underworld every night. So to me, this made sense that Yahweh was fighting because at night the sun looks like it descends into the Mediterranean Sea from the perspective of, you know, someone in Israel. How did the ancient Israelite view the cosmos? How did they view Yahweh? That's what we're talking about today. Dr. Charlo, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Awesome. So Dr. Charlo, can you give us your general background on the topic? Sure. Um, so I'm a biblical scholar. Uh, I have a PhD from the University of Toronto, and my research interests are ancient Israelite religion, in particular early Yahwism, and the ancient Near Eastern context of the Hebrew Bible. Awesome. So, didn't plan to ask you this. Uh, did you ever get to meet Robert Homestead? Uh, yeah, he was my supervisor. Oh. Uh, one of I had two supervisors. Um, so they were kind of uh, co-supervising me, but yeah, Robert Homestead is very great. So uh, you know, you knew of him? Yeah. So I've done three or four videos interviewing different scholars and such on his inter his uh, translation of Genesis one one, which is like a huge deal, and you know the origins debate and all that kind of stuff. So uh, did right, right. I'm aware of yeah, in the beginning period when Yahweh began to create or something. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> did he ever like randomly give you his spiel? Was it was it that big a deal at your school as it was uh, in the in the I guess the lay people world? Uh, no, I mean, he has a lot of theories, a lot of linguistic uh, stuff that, mm -hmm. um, you know, he's a well-respected scholar. So he's got a lot going on. But I know that he did have some sort of a debate over a blog or something with maybe an evangelical <laughs> Christian. So. Uh, he did mention that once or twice, and I think that might have been the topic of that debate. So, yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I've read that. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, can you give us your general overview of your book? Um, sure, yeah. So in the book, I, I'm basically just exploring uh, Yahweh's character, and I try to determine how his followers saw him, so what kind of God they thought he was. Uh, so you know a lot of scholars, yeah, there's the book there. Um, so a lot of scholars will look at modern interpretations of God or religion, uh, what modern people think. Uh, my research is kind of the opposite. I'm just concerned with the belief of those Yahwists who wrote the Bible, especially the earliest material. And uh, as for what I conclude in the book, you could kind of say it's controversial, I guess, because... I'm challenging sort of what's become an orthodox position, which is that Yahweh was a storm god. So I'm not sure um, some of your audience members will have gone through uh, school for being a biblical scholar, but one of the things you just learn is that Yahweh was a storm god. And it's not really gone into too much depth. Uh, it's just kind of the way it is. Uh, but I found that during my master's degree, I actually started finding evidence that seemed to contradict that. And, you know, I found more and more evidence of a solar nature. So for my PhD dissertation, I ended up arguing that 
Yahweh was a sun god. And this book is, you know, a lot of it's the same, but I also added a whole new section in my book. Um, but it's based on that dissertation. So basically, I just felt like as an academic, you're supposed to question everything. And I felt that that view in particular was kind of not critiqued enough. Uh, it was just kind of so widespread a belief that it was no longer questioned. And uh, so I felt that I had to be the person to investigate it more and uh, give my view, which was that he was solar. That's awesome. And uh, just to be clear, it's called the solar nature of Yahweh. And uh, it'll be linked in the description. Everyone should go check it out. It was a really, really interesting book. I liked it a lot. Um, oh, thanks. thanks. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, how would you say that you challenge the the scholarly census on the topic? Okay, yeah. I guess I should start by giving a bit of context behind that. So I think like in general, it's agreed that by a certain time period, so after the exile, um, so second temple period, Yahweh is kind of the God of everything or the overarching Lord of the cosmos. So the question then for scholars is how did that happen? Like when did it start to happen? Uh, how did he become this God? And then what was his original nature if he became this God of everything? So, I mean, these are really difficult questions uh, to be clear. It's not like it's clear cut, obvious. Um, Obviously, one of the biggest problems is that there's no agreement on when the biblical texts were written. Uh, and there might even be more debate now than there was, you know, a few decades ago, because we have this new group of scholars. Um, these usually European scholars, and they'll say that the Bible was all written in one time period. Like it was all composed in the Persian period, which is quite late. That's, uh, you know, fifth century. Uh, and then they'll argue like you can't date a book based on the language in the book. So if you say, you know, this passage looks archaic, there's old Hebrew words here. Uh, those scholars will just argue that the scribe intentionally made it look older than it is. So you can never really say when a text was truly written. Um, and on top of that, there's also the question of when a text was originally written versus the date of the version we have in the Masoretic text. Um, so yeah, that's just the background. Um, basically, I, I think that there are certain assumptions that I don't agree with about the way Yahweh's nature is viewed. Um, so basically the assumption is that he must have gone on this evolutionary path. So he, couldn't have begun as a God of everything. He must have started off small and sort of expanded his, um, you know, absorbed other God's characteristics or whatever. Um, and I don't really agree with that being the only possible way things could have gone down. And I think maybe it's based on the popularity, you know, ever since Darwin, we kind of apply this idea of gradual evolution to all different fields and just assume that that's the way everything works. But it's just another one of those entrenched views that I don't think is properly analyzed. Um, so for me, uh, how I'm challenging the consensus, I'm saying that 
I don't even necessarily think God evolved that much. I think Yahweh um, probably didn't significantly change from the beginning. Um, and so I found the reason I think that is because I found that sun gods in particular are very, very powerful already at the very beginning. So you don't need to explain some sort of evolution if it's true that Yahweh originally was a sun god. Um, so you might not know, like sun gods weren't just about, you know, giving warmth, giving light. They also were the kind of the judge of the universe. And I guess that was because, you know, as the sun god moved through the underworld and upper world, he was able to witness things that were going on. Uh, then when he went into the underworld, he was able to, uh, you know, see what the realm of the dead, what, what they were doing, meet with other gods there, uh, discuss what the judgment should be uh, for, you know, in the divine council. So if the sun god made laws and sat at the head of the divine council, you know, in my view, there's nothing higher than that. So we know that some gods must have began as sun gods. So if Yahweh is one of these gods, then he wouldn't have needed to evolve. He would have already been, you know, at the head of the pantheon. So, uh, clarification, clarification question. So sure. when you say it, you know, Yahweh was a solar deity or a storm God, uh, I would, I would assume that you're saying that the, the descriptions that we are given is typical of that. Like, I guess the stereotypical way that, you know, storm gods or sun gods are seen in the ancient Near East is, is because it's like, it's almost like, um, like, obviously, we can't know what the ancient Israelite writer was thinking, except for the text. Uh, so is it is it just that we're texts that we're going off of? And that's why you're saying like, like a description of, oh, it's a solar deity, because these three texts say have solar characteristics. Is that does that make any sense? Right. So Again, I try to find the earliest text. And that, again, I said that was difficult to do, but um, there, there are reasons to think. And some scholars do kind of widely agree that certain poems, for example, are very old. So I try to see what was Yahweh described as in those before I look at, you know, stuff that we know is later. But I think the whole picture of the Bible, depending, doesn't matter when it was written, um, it's kind of like throughout, you can pick any passage and see that that's similar to the way sun gods are described, you know, in the ancient Near East. So, Wow, very interesting. Okay, so are you telling me that I have to um, repaint my picture of a Zeus-like god in the background here with a, uh, a thunderbolt? Uh, no, uh, actually, I think... The sun god does have some power over the storm. Okay. Um, okay. Anyway, yeah. All right, that's that's good news. Uh, I, as people will see, I just did an intro based off of this. Uh, it's supposed to be uh, Isaiah twenty-seven, uh, but um, oh. that that'd been really awkward if it uh, if I had to change my whole painting. Uh. Right. <laughs> um, but anyways, so. Uh, uh, so what would you say is the normal evidence given for why uh, most scholars think Yahweh is pictured as a storm deity? 
okay, so there's a few things. I mean, there's etymology and then there's textual evidence. So the theory about Yahweh potentially being a storm god, it kind of goes back to the mid to late 1800s. And that's when scholars started to question, you know, is the Tetragrammaton, so Y-H-W-H, is Yahweh's name really Hebrew in the beginning? Because if it is, then why is there no Hebrew, at least biblical Hebrew verb, Hawa, which would be what you would expect? Um, so most scholars thought this, like, I am who I am explanation of Yahweh's name probably wasn't reflecting the original and true etymology of the name. And so they found that there's an Arabic verb, Hawa, and it means to blow. And and usually it's about, you know, air or wind. So they agreed that, I mean, certain scholars agreed that if this was the etymology of his name, then he was probably a storm god originally, you know, because of the wind. Um, now, I'm not sure if that is the real meaning of his name. Uh, that's something that's like even more complicated. So hopefully in the future, I'll figure that out. But um, the interesting thing about that theory is that in ancient Near Eastern cosmology, the sun god is blown across the sky by these minor wind deities. And actually in Akkadian, the word for sunrise is, or one of the words they use for sunrise is derived from a verb meaning to blow, napahu. Uh, but as far as I know, no one's ever considered that interpretation of of the name. So, so my point is, even if that was the etymology, it's not necessarily showing that he's a storm god. But once this new etymology was accepted, then scholars started to look at certain poems and passages where Yahweh seems to be in control of a storm or certain natural elements that are involved in a storm. So you've got like Exodus 15, um, Psalm 29, Psalm 68, Judges 5. There's, there's a bunch uh, that you could point to where you find descriptions of Yahweh that you could interpret as, you know, just focusing on a storm. So you have things like Yahweh's voice is in the heavens or he rides on the wings of the wind. Um, you know, he makes rain fall from the clouds. So seeing those sorts of things, those passages might make you think that he's a storm god. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, you know, he's he's the the cloud rider. Um, and you know, that's the mm -hmm. same thing that Baal is called in, in Igarit, which is like, oh, well, you know, if he's called that there in that one passage and, he, and then Baal is called in, in this other passage, it seems like they must be seen as the same type of deity. Uh, but actually, can I correct you on that really quickly? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that is kind of like a misconception. I don't know who first said that, but it's not the same word. Um, there's a word for cloud. So cloud rider is something that Baal is called, but actually in Hebrew, there's a word that's very similar um, that means, uh, sorry, it means steplands or like uh, desert kind of, and that's what, Yahweh is called actually is like rider of the steps. So S T E P P E S. Um, that's the real translation of that passage. But some scholars have argued you should like amend the text to make it fit this comparison with Baal. So, Oh, wow. That's, 
Yeah. Oof. Okay. All right. So, anyways, uh, thank you for correcting me on that. That's really fascinating. Uh, can <laughs> Can you talk about why you do not think this storm deity and uh, interpretation is likely? Okay. So yeah, those passages that people cite to say that Yahweh controlled storms, I agree that he does control storms. I mean, it's hard to deny that, but I just don't think that would be evidence that he was originally this kind of like minor localized storm God. So, you know, the average storm, if you think about a storm, you're thinking usually about wind, water, and if there's lightning, then, you know, fire as well. Um, so to be a proper storm God, you'd need to have command of these minor deities or minor forces like wind, fire, water. And the only God in the ancient Near East who controls all three of these is the sun God. So I guess I'm saying that the sun God is the storm God. But when scholars say storm God, what they usually have in mind is this lesser God, uh, you know, um, one that's like subservient to a sun god. So, for example, the Egyptian Amun or the, there's a Mesopotamian god, Adad. But these are wind gods. They're not storm gods. I mean, you can have wind storms, but when people say storm god, I think they're picturing the whole, you know, a thunderstorm. And that's not, uh, that's something that the sun god would have exclusive power over. Wow, that is something that I've never heard before. Okay. Uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Sorry, to, I just wanted to say yeah, that sure. in the book, I kind of went in depth looking at two of these commonly cited storm god passages. So I looked at Psalm 18 and I looked at Psalm 29. I couldn't look at all of them, but these are kind of, you know, representative of what sort of descriptions you find. Um, so I went through them verse by verse in the book. And I compared each description in those passages of Yahweh with descriptions of other gods in the ancient Near East. So I could see what, you know, what the comparisons were, what they resembled elsewhere. Um, so I, I have some, um, I have a few passages here. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if I read you just these really brief uh, descriptions of a God and you see if you can figure out, is it, Yahweh is it or what kind of God do you think it's describing all right let's do it if you don't mind <laughs> okay so so these are in the book um, so here's one he makes the rain of the sky yield its water oh is that it okay yeah that definitely yeah, that seems like Yahweh yeah and so it is really similar to something that is said about Yahweh of course but this particular description is about the Sumerian sun god, Utu. Which, you know, it's not intuitive. You might not think that's a sun god. So that's the first one. Another one I have here. Uh, May everyone praise him together when he raises his eyes and flashes like lightning. Well, if, it, if it's about lightning, I almost want to assume it's, it's Yahweh because that's the stereotype. But... but... Yeah, I don't know if we have enough to go off of that either on in either way, right? Yeah, and then most people see the word lightning and they're like, that's a storm god, right? So interestingly, that's Utu, the Sumerian sun god. Again, that passage is talking about. So I thought that was interesting. I uh, got a couple more here. Uh, you drive away the darkness and offer your arrows of light. 
That doesn't seem like Yahweh. What kind of god would you assume? Arrows of light. Well, that sounds like lightning in that regard. Uh, but it, I, that is interesting that... I mean, so you do think that's about lightning, right? Um, probably, yeah. Yeah, I think usually arrows of light would probably be lightning, yeah. That's interesting that... Because it sounds like maybe... Uh, that's some like a an ancient person saying that you know lightning kind of looks like an arrow when it's going through the air that's really interesting i I never thought of it like that but yeah i have no idea and the reason i've I've chosen these in my book is they do look very similar or they're almost identical to descriptions of yahweh but this one is actually in the hymn to atin so it's about the egyptian sun disc uh god of the sun disc atin and then one more uh, the east wind is open and a fair path is made so that he may go forth on it. Yeah, I have no idea on that one either. Yeah, so you might think because the wind and the going forth on the wind, again, people would say storm god usually, but it's about the Egyptian sun god, Ra or Re, uh, coffin text from the coffin text. So I thought it was interesting that, you know, any of these could be descriptions of Yahweh. And I bet if you read them in the average church, as if it was like about Yahweh, I don't think most people would notice yet their descriptions of sun God. Something you'll hear repeated by scholars a lot is that certain Psalms, like Psalm 29, uh, are strikingly similar to passages about the God Baal. And many will even claim these are copies or adaptations of Ugritic text. And this view goes back to the work of uh, Dahud, Mitchell Dahud, who was notorious for exaggerating parallels with Canaanite literature. So I thought I should revisit it because most people cite these similarities, even though Dahud has kind of been discredited in a lot of circles. People will still cite like, you know, Psalm 29 is from Ugaritic or whatever. So I thought I would look into it more carefully. And when I did, I found there aren't really that many similarities. And in fact, the verbs and the nouns that are used, you know, in these poems about Yahweh, and then you look at Ugaritic, and the verbs and nouns are completely different. Uh, almost never even a similar word used. So we're supposed to believe that the Hebrew scribes copied or adapted these Ugaritic texts, but also completely reworked them, reworked the language, even though both are written in Northwest Semitic uh, languages. So to me, it's just not a solid argument about, you know, Yahweh being a storm god. And then one other thing I should note um, is the locations that Yahweh is associated with are very dry places in the steppe lands uh, southeast of Israel. So, for example, Yahweh comes from Sinai, uh, Horeb, Seir, Edom. We don't know exactly where Sinai or Horeb, the you know the holy mountain, was located, but we do know that Seir and Edom are regions in northwestern Arabia, and there. Storms are very rare, and there's almost no annual rainfall. So I just, logically speaking, I feel it would be strange to find a storm god was the chief god of one of those regions. And, uh, you know, the earliest poems about Yahweh coming from these places, they don't emphasize rain or, you know, even talk about rain, usually. 
they focus a lot instead on his rise from the mountain and then the subsequent uh, divine judgment, which is also what we find in hymns from Mesopotamia about Utu or Shamash, who's the sun god and the god of justice. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm f- uh, specifically Michael Heiser, he's he's talked about like, uh, you know, the, the writer of Psalms, he's, he's trying to make a... Um, basically an attack on Baal, like Baal isn't the real storm deity, Yahweh is. The thing is that when people say that it's like from Ugaritic text, mm-hmm. they don't cite like side by side usually. And I think in my book, I do put a few that Dahud used to try to argue like these are similar. And then you look and they're not like, it's like two words that are sort of similar. And, you know, the context is not there and, there's no like lengthy passage where you can say, look, it's the exact same or similar. Um, and I think, you know, most scholars have now said that Dahud was exaggerating the parallels and that they admit that there's no Psalm, like the category of Psalm has ever been found at Ugarit. So for us to try to say like this Psalm is found at Ugarit, we don't have any Psalms from Ugarit. So yeah, it's just not a strong argument. You know, you argue that in your book that Yahweh wasn't seen as a storm god, but was actually seen as some type of solar deity, sun god. Can you talk about why you think that is? Yeah, so there are many reasons that I think that Yahweh was originally a sun god. So I'll just go through a few of them. Uh, And one of them, I think, early on convinced me that he was a sun god or maybe was a sun god is the fact that in so many Psalms, you find that Yahweh appears in the morning, like particularly the morning is emphasized. So we find statements like in the morning, I will see your face. Um, uh, you know, people waiting for the morning in order to uh, see Yahweh. And also you have Yahweh rising from the holy mountain in certain poems. Um, so Deuteronomy 33, Judges 5, Habakkuk 3. These are poems that scholars are Pretty, there's a pretty wide agreement that these are really old, some of the oldest in the Bible. And there's, they're talking about how he's rising from the mountain. And it's there's very clear you know, indications that this is solar, especially in Habakkuk 3, where it talks about lighting up all the lands and stuff. So uh, when I looked, I couldn't find any statements that actually contradicted this idea that Yahweh appears in the morning. So some... Scholars have actually argued that, oh, it's just because people wake up in the morning. So, of course, you know, they're only going to see Yahweh in the morning. But, I mean, there's some psalms that are clearly set during the night. And the psalmist is talking about how he just can't wait for the morning to come because God is basically not there, absent. So, this then made me want to look into other passages that are set at night uh, in it made me uh, discover that Yahweh is rarely present at night. And when he is, you can explain it as a dream, or in some cases it will explicitly say in the text, like this was a dream, or the person fell asleep, and then all of a sudden Yahweh is there, and then later he wakes up in the morning. So it's kind of you know implied that it's a dream. And if you compare this with ancient Near Eastern cosmology, The sun god is obviously in the underworld at night, so the only way for him to communicate with his followers is by sending them a dream. 
And there's, you know, there's evidence of that where he actually does communicate with his followers through dreams. So I think the same belief is being reflected in the Bible. And then finally, I would say one that convinced me pretty early on was this notion that for some reason, the enemy of Yahweh is the sea or a sea monster uh, dragon. And I thought, why is this? And then you have a comparison with the sun god in Egypt who fights a dragon of the underworld every night. So to me, this made sense that Yahweh was fighting, basically fighting the sea because at night the sun looks like it descends into the Mediterranean Sea from the perspective of you know, someone in Israel. Uh, otherwise, to me, it doesn't make sense why a storm god would fight with a sea monster or, you know, the sea. Um, I mean, it could be that I'm coming at it too logically, but I feel like the storm and the sea have a lot of the same elements. So a storm is like wind and water fighting against, you know, windy, watery thing. Uh, to me, it makes more sense that the light or the fire of the sun is defeating this dark, uh, you know, watery thing. And I think we, I mentioned earlier that most ancient cultures actually thought lightning was caused by the sun god or that it even came out of the sun itself. So, yeah, to me, there's many more reasons, but these are just a few of why I think Yahweh was a sun god. I wanted to ask you, when you said that it would be weird for a storm deity to be, you know, I guess, fighting with a, a water sea deity. Uh, why why would this be weird? I mean, we definitely see that with Baal when he fights Latanu, the, the Baal epic. Uh, gosh, what, what is that actually called? Uh, uh, the Baal cycle, yeah. Yeah, the Baal cycle. Yeah, um, so we see, we see that. So why would that be so weird when we actually do see that? That's a great question. And you just reminded me that I had been working on a paper and I kind of went to something else because I have a paper that I'm writing about that. And um, it's maybe too hard to get into it too much, but I'll just say a quick thing about it. Um, at the very end of the ball cycle, it's like cut off. Uh, there's a big part cut out, but then at the very end, like there's a few passages at the very end, but before that, it's like a big chunk cut out. So the conclusion of the whole thing is like, praising the sun goddess it's praising shapshu which is the sun goddess sorry and uh basically i think that the sun goddess has a much larger role in the myth than scholars notice and so i know a few scholars have written on that but um i'm trying to you know write something where I try to demonstrate that actually Shapshu is the hero, hero of the Baal cycle rather than Baal. Um, but as uh, Wyatt wrote about before, um, there's actually three gods that are said to have defeated the sea monster in that myth uh, in different parts. So there's, I think it's Anat, if I'm not mistaken, and then it's Atharat, and then it's Baal are all said to somehow defeat. I mean, okay, it's complicated because there's the sea monster. And then later, like the second half of the Baal cycle, it's about defeating Mot, which is the god of death. So it actually switches enemies. But I think they're probably 
you know, either on the same side or they might even be identified. So I know it's getting complicated, so I don't know if you want to keep this in or not, but uh, basically <laughs> it's not just about Baal, even though they call it the Baal cycle, there is other gods that are at play and that are involved in killing the, the enemy. And then it's interesting that at the very end, you have a hymn to praise Shapshu, which is the sun goddess. So I think we just don't know enough about it and there's breaks in the text and stuff. So yeah, it's a little complicated, but um, I'm writing something about that now. So Very fascinating. Okay, cool. That'll be something that most people haven't heard of before. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously these texts, um, Yahweh is a sun god, um, you know, they're, they're seen. Okay, people are, are aware of them. Uh, and you talked about it a little bit, but why are scholars still okay with like, saying that, you know, there's there there are Yahweh or solar characteristics, but they're still considered to be, uh, you know, a storm deity? Yeah, so there's different ways that scholars will explain this or try to get around it. And one of these ways... Uh, so, you know, when you see a description like his face appears in the morning or he's rising from the mountain, most scholars will say, okay, at least I can see that in those specific cases he's being described in solar terms or something like that. Uh, and many will just say it's metaphorical language. And I don't really like that explanation just because I feel it's an easy way to discount something. So... For example, I could say Yahweh is a sun god, but whenever he seems to be, you know, a storm god or some other type of god, that's just a metaphor rather than trying to explain why in real terms he's being described that way. Because obviously the followers, it would be confusing if, you know, they had to figure out which things are really uh, the characteristics of my god and which things were just like, you know, flowery language that has no real, you know, basis in reality. So, yeah, I think it's just a simplistic way to discount the aspects of Yahweh that, you know, are difficult to explain. And then there's another group of scholars who argue that all these solar descriptions about Yahweh are from later tradition. So in other words, they're not original to his nature. And in this case, they will... Uh, refer to this process it's a hypothetical process called solarization but very commonly cited even though it's not been demonstrated to have taken place and I think that this is just a result of this evolutionary view uh, that I mentioned earlier so basically if you find that Yahweh was a storm god originally which is what they think and then you find these solar characteristics well that's just part of the process of absorbing other gods' characteristics. So they can just say, this is along the way he got these characteristics later. Um, but the only problem, or a major problem with this explanation is that Yahweh already has clear solar features in some of the earliest poetry. So in Deuteronomy 33, which was a main focus of my, my book and my dissertation, uh, and it's agreed by most scholars to be very early, so he rises from the mountain like the sun. And not only that, there are these minor deities awaiting his arrival so they can receive his commandments about, you know, uh, to help him execute judgment. And this is a clear description of the divine council. 
so similar to Sumerian and Akkadian texts that I was able to, I did like a side-by-side -side comparison of a Akkadian text about the sun god. And it looks very similar to Deuteronomy 33, uh, 2 to 3, uh, those verses in particular. So to say that, you know, this is a late text, ignores this like comparative material and the clear, uh, you know, archaic features of Deuteronomy 33 that I think most scholars have agreed that it is an old text. So, And then I also find it hard to believe that if Yahweh was originally a storm god, that his followers would just accept, you know, he keeps getting these new characteristics, you know, that seem to contradict his stormy nature. So did he go from being, you know, this dark, cloudy God to all of a sudden bright and pure? Would would you accept that if you were a follower of Yahweh? All of a sudden, he's the opposite of what he used to be. It just doesn't really, you know, I know I'm going at it too logically, maybe. But uh, and then there's also the question of what sun God did Yahweh get these characteristics from and kind of displaced? And I don't think that's ever really, you know, nobody really tries to explain that. And so in other words, if we do accept this solarization process, I think there's still a lot of unanswered questions that, you know, should make scholars more hesitant to just accept. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Okay, so um, you talk about in your book, you... Um, what description would you say is explicit to a storm god that is ex explicit to a solar deity? Um, in other words, um, you know, if we we want to be able to differentiate the labels, so are there any things that we don't see in a solar deity that we do see in a storm god, or is there anything that we see in a storm god we don't see in a solar deity? Um, I would say. Because the sun controls the storms, I would say that any storm characteristics can be explained as features of a sun god, but the other way around, it doesn't work. So, you know, God appears in the morning consistently. I don't think we're talking about storms. I mean, storms can appear whenever, uh, and they don't tend to start in the morning, you know, on average. So that one doesn't make much sense. Uh, rising from the mountain... I mean, you could argue that, but then when you look at those passages, it's not just about the rise, but there's a lot of light language with it, lighting up the land in Habakkuk 3. Um, the verbs that are associated with rising are also used for brightness or lighting up things. Uh, so any description of a dark god or... Um, if, if, if the God is described as bright or pure, I don't think you're looking at a storm God there. So, yeah, I would, I mean, there's a lot more too, but just off the top of my head, I guess those would be kind of explicit to sun gods. Whereas, again, like I said, a storm God, it, there's not really such a thing other than a sun God, because unless you're talking about wind storms, then it's a wind God, uh, and that's a minor deity, but yeah, so that seems like that's why it, it gets kind of confusing because you have things that overlap and uh, maybe that that explains why there's this almost confusion in your eyes at least. Um, so uh, do you think that seeing Yahweh as a solar deity is some evidence for 
you know, original people leaving Egypt. Um, I mean, everyone knows that, you know, Egypt's main deity was the solar, was, was the sun god. And okay. it's like, okay, if, if the Israelites are living or leaving Egypt, it would make sense for them to see Yahweh as the solar deity. Do you think that's any evidence for some type of early people living Egypt? Uh, I wouldn't say that that is evidence. I mean, I do think that there must have been groups that lived in, in Egypt or Egyptian territory because, of course, it would be strange to have this tradition of the exodus of your people leaving Egypt if they were never there. Uh, so I do think that that has some historical reality to it. But I think that's also different from saying that Yahweh was originally an Egyptian god or something like that because... Uh, well, I mean, as you know, you probably know that there's Egyptian texts that mention this location. I think it's probably the northern Sinai where uh, these nomadic groups, the Shashu, lived. And it was called, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but like Y-H-W Aleph, I think. So that's very similar to the name Yahweh. And some scholars have rightly pointed out that this has probably has some relationship to uh, to the god Yahweh, maybe the place was named after the god worshipped there, or or vice versa. But, um, but I just don't think we can say there's any evidence that Israelites worshipped an Egyptian god per se. I mean, Egyptian, like the Egyptian god is called Re or Ra or Horus. Uh, I just don't see why a group coming out of Egypt would accept the god but then reject his name. So. Um, and, you know, according to the Bible, Moses, it was introduced to Yahweh in Midian, not in Egypt. So, I mean, I think the reason that we generally will connect worshiping sun gods to Egypt. So, you know, they'll say, if Yahweh was a sun god, then must have come from Egypt because that's where they worshiped a sun god. But I think it's much more of a widespread phenomenon than that. Uh, in my book, I actually argue that pretty much all the ancient Near East cultures had the sun god at least originally as the head of the pantheon or if not like nominally at the head of the pantheon then um, Steinkeller for example a, a Mesopotamian or a Syriologist he said that the sun god was the de facto master of the universe in uh, in Mesopotamia so that means that Although on paper, he's not at the head there. He was, the, you know, he had the most power. He was basically in control of everything. So I think it, more and more it's being recognized that it's not just an Egypt thing. It's like, it's probably, I mean, even the whole ancient world was, a lot of sun gods were very powerful. But definitely in the ancient Near East, uh, it was pretty common to have a sun god at the top. So, yeah. Um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, uh, as, as I hope we'll get into here. Uh, so uh, when we're talking about, you know, the supreme role of the sun, um, you know, that's a that's a big part of the, the ancient Near Eastern worldview. Uh, can you talk about that as well as just how else they saw the the cosmos? Yeah, yeah. So I do focus on before I get into my arguments about Yahweh as the sun god, I give an overview of ancient Near Eastern cosmology and the role of the sun in that system. 
because I think it, it's important to know that before you go and read uh, biblical passages, because, I mean, not only is the material older, but, you know, we always learn that you should study ancient Israelite religion in the context of the ancient Near East. So if you're not aware of this context uh, first, then it's hard to see these connections. So basically when I was, I was willing, like when I first wrote my thesis, I was willing to just take someone else's diagram of the cosmos and use that. But then I found a lot of sort of um, text that went against some of the nuances in there in this uh, diagram of the cosmos that most scholars have. So yeah, maybe I'll just, I'll tell you what the typical ones look like and you can put up an image or whatever, and then you can, we'll talk about mine, how it's different. So usually I'm sure most of your viewers will have seen like one of these diagrams. It's like a little, you know, snow globe or something. So you've got like the land is flat and you've got the sky dome over it. And usually the sky dome is like propped up by mountains. So as far as I know, like that, I'm not, I don't take any, I don't have any problems with that basic shape uh, of what the cosmos look like. But one of the major issues I have is with the water, like how water figures into the cosmos. So most diagrams will show like a vast ocean below almost like the earth is just floating on water and it's really deep, deep water, you know, and it's all interconnected. So a major difference with my version is that these waters are not all interconnected, but are more like distinctly separate into two reservoirs. So fresh water and salt water. I think this was an important distinction and it was linked to life and death essentially. So you had sunrise in the east. And this was associated with, you know, life, birth, um, fresh water, because, you know, waters of life. Um, you know, whereas in the other side, the west side of the cosmos, you had the sunset, which represents death. And um, the waters of death then would be associated with the west. So salt water, was more associated with that direction, especially that makes sense for places like Israel and Ugarit, where you have the sea right there, you know, the Mediterranean. Um, but another important difference with my version is I kind of have two versions of the cosmos really, because you have two major mountains in a lot of these um, descriptions of the cosmos. So in Mesopotamia and Egypt, for example, You've got your east mountain and your west mountain. And these are like the anchors that hold up the sky, or the dome of the sky. And usually, um, you know, the good God or the good forces are in the east and the bad forces are in the west. But for the people that lived on the coast, like Israelites, you had to modify that because there was no mountain to be seen in the west. So you were looking at just the sea. And so... The sky dome must have been held up by, you know, some foundation maybe at the very west horizon that was not like very tall, something like that. But so you got mountain, mountain in Mesopotamia and Egypt, and you got like mountain sea in Israel and Ugarit. And I think it's important to have those two versions, like depending if you're inland or, you know, on the sea. And then uh, something else that's pretty important, I guess, with my version is that 
I locate the sun god's palace on the holy mountain in the east. And most people have God, you know, beyond the cosmos, like either, you know, somewhere outer, in outer space or in some thin layer just above the sky dome. They'll have like God lives out here. Um, but I think that, you know, God lived on the holy mountain in the east. And this is where, you know, the divine council meetings were held. And this is where his royal garden, you know, the Garden of Eden was located. So a problem, I think, is thinking that God's lived beyond the cosmos when really there's no description of anything existing outside of this ordered cosmos. Uh, if anything, you have the gods always, you know, interacting with, with us in this universe. And so that, so my view of heaven, then, you know, people will say, well, where's heaven then? Cause of course there is a place that, you know, you could translate as heaven, which is, I like to say skies because heaven has this connotation of, you know, because of modern Christianity, it's like heaven is way out there somewhere or in a different dimension almost, but heaven is just the sky. So if Yahweh lives on top of the holy mountain, then he is in the skies. Um, you know, it's really high up. And uh, so basically heaven can be on solid ground. It doesn't have to be thought of as a midair or an outer space place. Um, and then, oh, yeah, yeah. So one more thing that relates to that is that the storehouses of rain and the other elements involved in the storm, they're usually pictured in these diagrams as being above the dome and they come through little windows or something. So I think these storehouses of the elements were instead in the palace of the sun god, which again was like in or on the mountain. And the, the rain then would ascend through like the same gate the sun god would come through when he comes from the underworld to the upper world. That gate is where the, the rain and the other elements would come up into the, into the upper world where humans live. And uh, yeah, there's somewhere in, in the book where I, where I demonstrate that rain is actually like water that was lifted from this freshwater well or reservoir in the underworld. And it's described almost like clouds are buckets that the God lifts and then tilts over onto the land below. That's really fascinating. It's really yeah. cool. Uh, of course, we could spend a whole, whole video on that one, that topic right there. Uh, but let's keep going. Yeah. So you've, you've explained how the ancient Israelite has, you know, viewed the cosmos. Uh, can you give us some general info as far why you think that they might have viewed it this way? Um, I mean, simply put, I think they viewed everything as a dichotomy, you know, good and evil. And then from there, everything else, life and death, light and darkness fresh water, salt water, like I said. So they're trying to create these categories. And I think that is probably just for trying to have control over something that's pretty chaotic, especially in a pre-scientific world, like, you know, uh, trying to figure out how can we understand the world and try to regulate it. I think having these 
strict categories, even though obviously today we see them as too simplistic or black and white. But um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that for that, from that perspective, uh, it makes sense to have right and wrong and uh, fit everything into that. Um, in terms of like, why they had the gods living in, you know, on mountaintops and stuff like that. I mean, you see that also in, you know, ancient Greek uh, culture. And the more I've looked into it, I I see that everywhere pretty much is, you know, in India as well. Gods live on mountaintops. And I think this makes sense uh, because, I mean, mountains are on the threshold. They're these liminal places. Um, The peak of the mountain is, you know, it's in the sky, but it's also on the earth. Um, And so like, even if you're thousands of miles up in the sky, a dark cave in that mountain is in the underworld. And I think that's probably where the palaces of gods were thought to be located, like at the peak, but like inside the mountain. And so I mean, when you realize the gods didn't live outside the cosmos, that they lived in the ordered universe with us, I mean, where else would they live if not, you know, in the underworld or on a mountaintop or in this case, you know, both. So I don't know. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So uh, you've defined the cosmos as Israelites see it. Can you talk about the significance of the sun and what role that would play in the cosmos? Yeah. Again, it's just about order and disorder, I guess. Um, So for every time the sun went down, you know, the sky got dark. People would feel a sense of insecurity. Like it's almost like they went back to that original state of disorder that existed before creation. So like, not only do you lose light and warmth, but as I said, the sun God is the God of justice. He's the one keeping an eye on, you know, the bad people. So when he's no longer present, physically present, uh, you know, what, how can you be sure that you, you know, will be safe from evil? Of course, there were like minor gods who kind of like the stars, for example, they were they could gather wisdom about what was going on, but it wasn't to the same extent. And they would have to then report to the sun god and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of complicated, but there would have been a general feeling of a lack of safety, I think, at night. Um, but then in the morning, order was restored. So all those bad things or things that you were worried about kind of ceased and then you know, you can see your God, you can, he can see what's going on. So uh, you, you can see why the psalmist often will beg Yahweh to save him from the enemy and then look forward to the morning when he will see the face of God because like that's your salvation is, is in the morning. So, and, and then beyond that, um, there's something that I'm writing another book on right now. Uh, so I won't get into too much, but Certain people, I mean, particularly kings, had the potential to live forever with the sun god on his holy mountain uh, if they behaved like according to cosmic order. So, or which, you know, righteously uh, ruling their uh, jurisdiction would be a way to uh, work with the gods to maintain cosmic order. So, awesome. All right. So, let's talk about some objections to your view. So, 
You, you argue in your book that Yahweh uh, should be seen as a solar deity. One reason scholars have said Yahweh can't be a solar deity is because Yahweh is the one who creates the sun in Genesis 1 and on and Genesis 1 on day 4. You think that is actually evidence for your view. Can you explain that? Yeah, for, for the longest time, I didn't know why people felt that was a contradiction. Like that if God made the sun, then he couldn't be the sun God. Uh, I mean, okay, so like when when statues are made for God, the followers will worship the statue, but they know it's not identical to the God. They're worshiping the essence of the God in the statue. So like was the statue of Ishtar Ishtar or was the planet Venus Ishtar? Because, for example, at night, like which one would you think was Ishtar? Basically, neither of them was actually Ishtar, but her, you know, her essence or spirit or wind uh, could be housed in these statues. And in the same way, they can be the gods can house themselves in stars, moon, sun, things like that. So uh, basically the idea is that a god creates some sort of a cover or a shield for themselves. And in Akkadian, this is what is known as malamu, usually translated as radiance. And so it's not literally the god, but they're basically always traveling in that shell. So, you know, you could look up at Venus and say there is Ishtar, even though you are aware that you're just looking at her external you know body so we know that in egyptian myth uh, the sun god was the creator of the sun disk and like the aten was not the god which is you know why akhenaten's uh, worship of the aten was kind of like it was a heresy because instead of worshiping the god of the sun you were worshiping the sun disk itself so clearly they weren't the same things it was like a creation of the sun god that he usually would travel in. So I think if Elohim in Genesis 1 created the sun disk, this goes hand in hand with the solar nature. Um, and, you know, you also see it, for example, in Psalm 104, where it says that Yahweh is clothed with radiance and wrapped in light. Uh, what other light would he be wrapped in other than the sun? So, um Oh, yeah, there's one other one. Um, the Greek version of Psalm, uh, Psalm 19, I think it is. Yeah, it's Psalm 18 in the Greek, but it's Psalm 19 in the Hebrew. So in that Psalm, the sun is described as like a hero who runs across the sky. Uh, but so the Greek version is a little bit different. Uh, instead of saying in the skies, God set up a tent for the sun, which is what you have in the Hebrew the Septuagint or the Greek says he, as in God, set up his residence in the sun. So the interesting question is whether that represents an older or more authentic version of the passage. Uh, and if it does, this fits that broader uh, ancient Near East view that the sun disk was like the vehicle or exterior shell of the sun god. All right, awesome. Yeah, that's very helpful. And that's a uh, that's pretty pretty strong evidence that yeah the Septuagint where it reads he set up his residence in the sun I mean that's specifically saying that God almost like travels around in the sun or yeah I mean sun. it's a bit complicated obviously the Greek version 
Like we know when the translators translated it from a Hebrew version, it was like second century or so BC. Uh, so I, I think I'm right. Don't quote me on that. But so yeah, in right. other words, what version did they have? Maybe they were using a Hebrew version that had been edited over time. And maybe the Masoretic text is older. You can never really pinpoint again, like a specific date for a text. So I'd like to think that they wouldn't have like the Greek translators wouldn't have put that in there. It must've been in their version that they were translating and it, you'd think they would almost try to like edit it out because it seems to go against, you know, the, the typical view of Yahweh. So it's strange that that's actually in, in their version of the Bible, I think. Yeah. Textual criticism is fun. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So another one is Psalms uh, 32.4. It says, For day and night your hand was heavy on me, your strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Can you explain why that might be an issue from your view and why you don't think it is? Yeah, in my book I acknowledge this as one of a few like passages that could seem to contradict my view that Yahweh doesn't appear at night. So of course it says day and night your hand was heavy on me so that you might think, well, there's Yahweh present at night. But if you consider that in Semitic, I mean, even in English, if you say someone's hand is in something, I mean, usually you're just talking about their power or control over something. So it's not like people think Yahweh was literally using his hand to day and night, like uh, torment this psalmist. It has to be to do with his power over the individual. So if you look at the greater context of the psalm, uh, he's the person speaking is anxious because he's not sure, basically, if he's still in the good graces of Yahweh. And so that weighs on his conscience, and it's like sapping his power. And they compare it to the heat of summer, maybe because, you know, when you're really anxious, you can, your, your temperature can rise quite a bit uh, or maybe it already was summer so they were already you know hot so it doesn't mean that Yahweh was physically in his room you know uh, so it doesn't go against my view necessarily um, yeah that's all there is to say about that I think it's just not that great of an evidence one way or the other mm-hmm. okay what's the next here's the next one Exodus 11 4 to 5 says so Moses said, this is what the Lord says about midnight. I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. How do you explain this one? If you know, God is seen as a solar deity, but he's there doing stuff at night. Yeah. And so actually I, I do deal with this in my book as well because I felt I should you know put these passages that could appear to go against me out there and try to figure them out instead of you know opening the door for someone to say you know this view makes no sense because look at these passages so the more I looked into this I found that it could be explained so Yes, in this passage, Yahweh seems to be saying that he 
will personally go out and slaughter all the firstborn. And it's funny, the event is announced a few times, I think, before it happens. And every time, almost every time, it's the same description. You know, Yahweh says, I will go out and do this. But there's one, uh, I think it's Exodus 12, 23, where it says that Yahweh will spare the Israelites by preventing the destroyer from killing them. So this reveals that there's some other entity involved in this. And if the destroyer can be prevented from killing, then he's probably also the one doing the killing uh, where Yahweh wants him to. So clearly Yahweh's orchestrating the event, but who's actually doing it? It seems that there's another figure at play here. And in 2 Samuel, the same character, the destroyer, appears and sends a plague against Israel, again, at the command of Yahweh. And in that passage, he's also identified as a malak, which, you know, you could translate angel. I like to translate emissary, uh, working for Yahweh. So it's not that rare in the Hebrew Bible to find these divine intermediaries acting on behalf of Yahweh. Uh, I mean, in Exodus, particularly, you find it quite a bit. Um, like these Malak, Malakim, they send plagues against the Egyptians. They help guide the Israelites through the desert. And they, they also show up in other books as well, but uh, like the slaughter of Sennacherib's army, for instance. But they there's a lot of it in Exodus. So, um, so you might wonder, you know, was Yahweh lying when he said he would do do the killing but i think that basically what we have here is a case where the master or lord takes credit for the work of his servant so for example i found that solomon is said to have built the temple of course but nobody thinks that he personally built it with his own hands so you know we have passages where craftsmen make the cherub statues and you know do all the intricate work to make the temple but then there's other passages that say solomon did these things so yes solomon ordered them to be made but he used servants to accomplish this task so i think we're seeing the same thing with yahweh saying at night i will do this but then you see he's really just sending out a divine servant to do the work for him so he doesn't have to be present at night is my point Little omission here before we answer the last one. Could you uh, talk to people about uh, where people can reach you if you want to do that? Or do you have a website um, and the name of the book and where they can get it? Oh, um, I mean, yeah, the uh, the book is available on different websites, Barnes and Noble. Uh, I think if you just Google the name of the book, The Solar Nature of Yahweh, uh, you'll be able to find somewhere to purchase it. I mean, the price is kind of steep. So I think that the the target audience, I guess, is like university libraries and things like that, unfortunately. I think there is an ebook version, though. That's what I would recommend people get because it's only maybe $30 instead of, you know, 100 So, yeah, I appreciate that. I don't have a website, but um, maybe, you know, I have an email, so I, I can give that to you. Cool. All right. And uh, you also have Academia at EDU. You've got a couple papers on there that people can check out yeah, your I stuff do. there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you have a, one paper that you're in the middle of writing about uh, creation is separating. 
which will be really oh, cool. Yeah, a yeah. lot of other cool stuff. A lot of other cool stuff you're working on. So anyways, um, on page 34, you talked about how God, you know, he travels with clouds of hail and fire. Can you talk about the significance of that? Yeah, it, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and it ties into this uh, talk of divine emissaries. So in Psalm 18, Yahweh said to travel with, I think it's clouds of hail and embers of fire, something like that. And then a few verses earlier, he's described riding on the cherubs. And there are other passages, too, where cherubs are either compared to or identified with clouds. So in this particular passage in Psalm 18, I interpreted the clouds of hail and fire as being two clouds. So one cloud that can send hail and one cloud that can send fire or lightning. And this it ties into a topic that I've written about before. Um, I'd given a, a conference presentation a couple of years ago about how Yahweh has two divine companions and how that fits his nature as a sun God. So I'll go through that a little bit, uh, but also talk about the hail and fire specifically. So uh, the seventh plague uh, in Egypt, it involves Yahweh sending hail and fire. And the Hebrew words for, for these things are barad, for hail and ish for fire. And so we tend to think of these as just natural elements, but in the ancient Near East, I mean, almost everything was seen as some sort of divine entity, uh, you know, with various ranks of, uh, you know, of the deity, but there was no such thing really as a strictly met, uh, like meteorological phenomenon. So this is, I think confirmed by another account of the same plague. So the seventh plague is talked about in Psalm 78. And in that case, instead of it being Barad and Aish, it says Yahweh sent Barad and Reshef. And so this word Reshef, it's usually translated fire, but the actual etymology of the word is, you know, kind of uncertain. But what we do know about Reshef is that he was a fairly significant god in the ancient Near East. And he was basically the West Semitic version of Nergal, who was a god of the underworld in Mesopotamia. And in Ugaritic texts, we find Reshef a few times. And he seems to have this role in one text of opening the gate of the underworld for Shapshu, which is the sun goddess. So that was really intriguing, especially when I found that in Egypt, there are these triad stellas where the sun goddess appears in the center and she has two gods at her side. So Reshef is one of these two. And then there's a fertility god on the other side. So I think it's kind of an east-west thing going on again. So you've got the sun god with the fertility god and the kind of death god or plague god. Um, so this role of Reshef as one of the two companions of the sun god uh, is what first clued me into a potential solar identity of Yahweh. So to expand on that, Yahweh often travels with minor deities. Usually they're called cherubs, but they go by many other names as well. So, and he doesn't just travel with them. I mean, they are sort of the the drivers of the chariot and they do his bidding in other ways too. Like I said, sending plagues or uh, guiding the Israelites through the desert. So I found that there are almost always two of them. 
for example, in Genesis 19, we see that uh, the, it's like the two emissaries of Yahweh are referred to, or the, the two Malachim of Yahweh. And most people think there's just one angel of Yahweh, but I mean, in this case, we see there's at least two. So that kind of goes against that theory that there's one specific uh, Malak or angel of Yahweh. Um, and interestingly, too, in that Genesis 19 story, there's a part where Yahweh sort of mysteriously just departs uh, at sunset and then he returns at sunrise. So, you know, that kind of fits in with my theory as well. Uh, meanwhile, the two emissaries, they remain in Sodom, you know, the whole night. So anyway, as for the different names of these two helper gods, so I talked about Barad and Reshef, so hail and fire. There's also, you know, the two cherubs, um, two emissaries, Malachim. And then in Exodus, there's, of course, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, which I think must have some connection again to these uh, two distinct um, divine assistants of Yahweh. And then in Habakkuk 3.5, uh, we're told that when Yahweh rises from the mountain, he has two gods either at his side or one in front of him, one behind him. And the two gods named are Deber and Reshef. Now, so Reshef I already talked about, but Deber is usually translated as plague. But it's also interesting that it's like a metathesized version of Barad. So if you flip around the letters of Barad, you get this Deber. Uh, and in other passages, I found that these two gods are kind of interchangeable in terms of their role as this other god with Reshef. So I'm leaning towards them being the same god. And it's significant for my theory because, you know, as I said, Reshef has a close relationship with the sun god, especially in those triad, those images of a triad in Egypt. Um, but there's also the fact that the cherubs in the Bible are these like twin hybrid creatures and they, you know, they're comparable to other twin hybrid creatures that work for sun gods, such as um, you have the Mesopotamian Kusariku. Uh, this is bull men, like half bull, half man uh, that usually have wings as well, I believe. And uh, they guard the Sumerian sun god Utu. And in Egypt, maybe more, you know, much more it's a much more known thing in Egypt where you have the two Sphinx who often appear with the sun between their shoulders or, you know, they're holding up the divine uh, sun boat, solar bark, so, uh, just like the cherubs carry Yahweh's throne. And uh, it's even more intriguing, I thought, that in at least one case, two minor deities that work closely with the sun god in uh, Mesopotamia are referred to as Sarapu and Burdu. So Sarapu is the Akkadian version of the seraph, uh, which probably means fire or burning. You find seraph uh, in the Bible. But interestingly, it's also a metathesis, again, of Resha. So if you rearrange the letters of Sarap, you get Resha. So there's probably something there. Uh, and then Birdu, which is the other of the twin gods, uh, that's just the Akkadian equivalent of that Hebrew word Barad, which is usually translated hail. So I would argue that, you know, these facts fit quite nicely with the notion that Yahweh was a sun god rather than some other type of god. Really cool stuff. That's awesome. Okay, that's all I have for you. Is any, anything else you wanted to say before we close off here? 
Um, no, I, I mean, that was a pretty thorough interview. So I really appreciate you inviting me on the channel. Awesome. Yeah, this has been awesome. And uh, I can't wait for uh, any potential other interviews that come through this. All right. This is awesome. I hope you have a great rest of your night there. You too. Thanks.